upstate. Uh, Roger, what are you eating or drinking today? Well, let me tell you, it's been a long, long time since we, <laughs> it seems like, since we recorded last. Uh, but today I'm back in D.C. just for a little while longer. I brought a little bit of upstate New York back with me. I'm drinking my last Saranac Generation 4 Session IPA, uh, which is pretty tasty. How about you? So I am taking a break until Thanksgiving because <laughs> there are going to be 15 people at my house. And as lovely as family is, I will probably um, get into the um, Golden Harvest brandy. Um, but I went by Stewart's today to pick up some ice cream for Thanksgiving and found that their eggnog flavor is out. So that's pretty exciting. But I was thinking, I was like, is there, you can definitely make pumpkin pie and apple pie and eggnog flavored ice cream, but I, I can't really think of there being like a Hanukkah flavored ice cream, like maybe jelly donut. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Flavored ice cream just does not roll off the tongue. Um, I think we should give it a try. Uh, maybe that's our first two vets upstate branded uh, thing. Right. Uh, I mean, like if if the goys can have bacon flavored ice cream, then we Jews definitely get latke flavored ice cream. It's got to work. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, what's new with you? Oh, goodness. Um, lots of changes going on. But first, I guess we'll start in central New York, where I'm moving to here in a few weeks. A uh, lot of snow, breaking snow records, which is making it real, real easy for me to convince my uh, Californian wife to move to central New York, but it's all good. Um, we're getting very close ourselves to buying a house, so that's pretty exciting. We're looking forward to the move. Andrea, how about you? Uh, lots of snow. Well, no, not lots of snow. We don't have lake effect in Kinderhook, but we do have snow on the ground. It's snowed every day since I've been home. I'm home for six days straight without getting on a plane. And it's amazing. What, what? Um, like I said, got lots of family coming in this week. Um, I mean, most of them are not traveling from very far, but yeah, I will have 15 people ish. At my house on Thursday by ish. I mean, I know I have at least 11, but I'm planning for 15. Um, and then I'll be back down to Virginia and DC end of next week. Um, so it's, I'll, I've got a, another two week road show coming up next week. Yeah, I know, Um, but I have a week off. It's amazing. So what's going on in New York? Well, if you remember, Andrew, the last time we talked, we were in Cooperstown, New York, at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, We mentioned just a little bit about the election, but I thought that we could take some time to go over uh, the results of the election in New York. Uh, So I think it's pretty pretty clear there wasn't a lot of... uh, you know, question about whether Andrew Cuomo, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Thomas DiNapoli would be re-elected to governor, senator, and state comptroller. That happened. Uh, but uh, Letitia James was uh, or became the first African-American woman to be elected as state attorney general, which is pretty great result there. 
Yeah. And uh, we're going to go through kind of the, re- we're going to go through the results of a couple of house races. The first one's not upstate, but you'll get why we're going over it. New York 11, which is the Staten Island uh, congressional district, Army veteran Max Rose uh, pulled off one of the biggest upsets in the country by knocking off the incumbent Dan Donovan by a margin of five points. Um, Max was officially more Staten Island than his ground game, than his opponent ran a terrific ground game. And then in my district, New York 19, this is uh, the first seat in upstate New York that flipped the first one that was announced for the night and a big victory for one of our recent guests, Antonio Delgado knocked off the incumbent John Faso 50 to 47 um, in what we anticipated was going to be one of the closest house races in the country. Um, it, it honestly, even though it's three points, was not as close as we thought it would be. Right. Um, honestly, we thought it was going to go to absentee ballots. Mm-hmm. Um, the podcast bump is real. Uh, we look forward to having Congressman-elect Delgado back on the show soon. Um, and what about the North Country, Roger? Well, Elise Stefanik, as expected, held off a spirited challenge from Democrat Tedra Cobb. Uh, She won by about 14 points. Um, In the New York 22nd, uh, which is Oneida County um, and uh, places south, parts of Oswego County as well, actually it was just announced that uh, Anthony Brindisi upset the incumbent Claudia Tenney in what was, uh, I think, one of the absolute closest contests in the country. We had a couple of those. We'll talk about another one a little bit later. But uh, Brindisi upsetting Tenney, if you'll remember, the weekend of the election, uh, Donald Trump was in, I think it was Donald, someone from the frickin' Trump family was in central New York, and it wasn't enough. Brindisi's a popular guy who's going to do a great job in Congress. He won by just about on election night, it was about 1,800 votes. I think that's risen now to about 4,000 out of, uh, you know, almost 200,000 cast. Wow. And then uh, let's see, we've got the New York 23rd, uh, Tom Reed, who feels like he's been in Congress forever, uh, <laughs> did hold off the Democratic challenger, 55, uh, Tracy Matrano, 55 to 45. And then, uh, Roger, what happened in your district? You're from the 24th, right? I am, yeah. The New York 24th is Syracuse, Auburn, so Cayuga County, Wayne County, and the western half of Oswego County. Um, Man, it was close. Uh, It felt like uh, something special might happen. Dana Balter, the Democrat, ran a great campaign. Really kudos to her whole team, Christine Wood, uh, the whole gang uh, there for organizing something really special. Fell short of unseating incumbent John Katko. They ended up Uh, falling short by about six points. Uh, That's significant because the last two challengers to John Katko had lost by about 20 points in a district that has voted Democratic for president since forever. So hats off to Dana Balter on on a race well run there. I was pretty proud. Yeah, I wonder who's going to... uh, That'll, that, that'll be interesting. To, that'll be an interesting race to watch in uh, 2020, especially with that closing margin. <laughs> and in New York 25, uh, the seat that was previously held by Congresswoman Louise Slaughter, uh, Democrat Chris, Joseph Morrell prevailed over Jim Maxwell. Um, and then finally, in another very close election, you're noticing a theme here. In the 27th, the indicted incumbent Republican Chris Collins 
beat Democratic challenger Nate McMurray by just 2,500 votes. Um, We should note that if and when Collins loses his seat because he is um, possibly a criminal, there will be a jail. So that's uh, the roundup for upstate New York. And and I just want to go kind of a little bit off off book here. You know, we we there's really one main, at least where I am, the the main source of political commentary over the airwaves here is WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and it covers, I believe, five or six states, and their political economy uh, commentary is always five dudes, and like I don't know how. You can cover six states and not find like one smart woman to come on the air and do political commentary. I'm just saying, WAMC. Uh, hint, hint. Say it loud for <laughs> people in the back of the podcast. Yeah. So, Roger, what's going on in the nation that impacts veterans? Oh, boy. Andrea, we need to have a talk. Oh, God. Yeah. We need to have a talk about. What's going on at the Department of Veterans Affairs, as we frequently do on this podcast, specifically with the GI Bill? Um, Many, many veterans, and by that I mean the number is in the thousands, tens of thousands, are experiencing delays well in excess of 30 days to receive their GI Bill housing stipend. This is due to a massive failure, uh, IT mismanagement after the VA claims it was unprepared for the changes that came in calculation of benefits under the forever GI bill. It's like uh, I was prepared for veterans to go to college. It's just, it's just unbelievable. I, I was at the house veterans affairs subcommittee hearing, um, just last week where ranking member Beto O'Rourke stood up strongly for veterans, which was heartening to see. Uh, personally, I was just struck by how cavalier and dismissive, Paul Lawrence, who is the Undersecretary of Veterans Affairs for Benefits, was throughout the entire hearing. He refused to give Congress a timeline for when their IT systems would be able to handle veterans' claims. He did not have a basic understanding of exactly how many veterans were missing housing payments in excess of 30 days. And, you know, predictably, I guess, he attacked the reporting of the problem in the media only offering what sounded like a weak, forced acceptance of responsibility once prodded by Congressman O'Rourke. And it sounded like there was a discrepancy between how many people he thought were uh, waiting for payments. Yeah, like you said, they didn't have a basic understanding when there are veterans who are literally at risk of homelessness right now. Yeah. I mean, look, if you say... If you say you're going to deliver something for veterans or any other group of citizens and it's your job to do it, if you fail spectacularly without notifying anyone of the problems you're having, just do us a favor and step aside or expect to be fired. You know, that we make the wrong people the scapegoat on this issue. And VA subsequently did that. Uh, Just underscores how broken our politics have become and how politicians continue to fail veterans on a number of issues. So if you are having problems with your GI Bill payments, please contact the VA and let them know. Post your interactions on social media if you can to let other vets know how they went and what to expect. 
Uh, the more vocal we are about what's going on, the more veterans will feel confident in coming forward and claiming the benefits that they've earned. And in addition, please don't stay silent about this. Be um, Talk to your, your academic institution about what's going on. They may not even know that that's why you're delinquent on payments. Um, most institutions are treating it in good faith. Um, and if you are having trouble making ends meet because of these missing payments, reach out to your local veteran service organizations, including your county VSOs. Um, they can either help you directly or point you in the direction of somebody who can. Nobody in upstate New York should be left behind here. And if you are listening to this and you're you know, on the fence um, or know someone who is, please drop us a line and we can help stand up for you. That's right. Um, we have some shout outs, which we'll get to quickly before we introduce our guest. Uh, first and foremost, to Admiral Bill McRaven, who is not an upstate New Yorker, but is a veteran from us at Two Vets Upstate. We just want to say, keep your head up. We are behind you. And to Leo Shane, who did an amazing job covering the veterans running for Congress this midterm election cycle over on the Military Times. And this one's very important. We need to <laughs> shout out to NATO for the thirstiest social media ploy they ever did with our amazing man bun distraction in the form of the Norwegian naval officer and Instagram model, Lasse Loken Matberg, who two of my girlfriends from my reserve unit met on AT two years ago and like did not invite me. Um, Shame. Uh, y- yeah. <laughs> we'll have his uh, picture on the show notes many, oh many times. It's so thirsty. I don't care. <laughs> um, and then finally, I think we'd like to just say to all the troops deployed everywhere, but especially those at the border who will be unable to spend time with their families this Thanksgiving in what is clearly a political stunt designed to tip the election scales Just hang on for a little while longer. Uh, Keep doing what you do professionally. Do the right thing as you continue to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Uh, We are with you, and there are better days ahead. And then uh, finally, we've got another live show coming. It will be January 8th in New York City. Uh, We do realize this is extremely not upstate, um, but... (laughs) It was an invitation we can't pass up, um, and don't worry, we are going to be repping upstate New York very aggressively in the big city, so more details to come. So, Roger, are you ready to introduce our guest? So much. It is our great honor to bring on to the show today our guest, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kate Germano. Uh, Kate is a good friend of ours. Uh, She was once called too tough for the Marine Corps. Uh, She made headlines in the spring of 2015 when she took a principled stand and confronted systemic problems of gender bias and lowered expectations for women in the Marine Corps. A 20-year career Marine and combat veteran, she fought back and became a national figure by speaking out against discrimination and advocating for higher expectations and standards for women in the military. Her writing has been published in national media outlets to include the New York Times, Washington Post, San Diego Union Tribune, Time, U.S. News and World Report, and more. She's been featured on NPR, C-SPAN, PBS NewsHour. Please 
join us in welcoming Kate Germano to the podcast. Kate, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. And can we also say you're also the author of um, Fight Like a Girl, which has made several um, reading lists this year. You were so kind. And I should mention that it, the book was co-authored by my friend and colleague, Kelly Kennedy. So we're both honored to be on the program. That's great. Uh, can you tell us about where and how you grew up? And I understand that that is connected to New York in some way. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, there's a deep connection there. So uh, when I was a kid, first of all, my my dad and my grandfather were both career army. And so we lived in uh, Texas for a long time where I was born, El Paso. And I spent many, many hours in a VW Bug driving from El Paso, Texas up to Auburn, New York for the Thanksgiving and Christmas and summer holidays. So um, I have cherished memories of uh, growing up in Auburn and exploring the architecture and being at the lake and having a good time up there. And so uh, it, it holds a really dear place in my heart. So why did you decide to join the Marine Corps? Um, I joined the Marine Corps after I was told essentially by the Navy that I wasn't smart enough to join the Navy. So uh, I tried to get into the Naval Academy, but I had already been enrolled in college. I was working uh, through school full time and I sort of discovered the Naval Academy late in my college experience. Um, so tried to get into the Naval Academy. I, it's a good thing I didn't because I wouldn't have been able to make it through all the engineering uh, courses, I'm sure. Um, went to see a Naval recruiter um, at the start of my senior year of college and uh, basically sat down with my SAT scores and my transcripts. And he said, hey, you know, you're just not going to cut it. You're not smart enough. And I was a good student. Um, so I wasn't going to be dismissed and I got up and I walked out and just lo and behold, right across the hall, there was this place called the Marine Corps recruiting office. And I had never really heard of the Marine Corps, walked in and uh, the gunny in the office asked me if I was waiting for my boyfriend taking the ASVAB. And no. at that point, my interest was piqued. And I uh, basically said, no, I'm interested in getting more information about the Marines and he started talking about higher standards and how physically demanding it was. And I sort of fell in love on the spot and that was it. Oh my gosh. Uh, let me just say that, uh, getting through the engineering classes at the Naval Academy is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> but we're glad that you went the path you went down. <laughs> I am definitely, I think it worked out well for me I, in many ways. So I appreciate that, but trust me, I am no rocket scientist. I, I think I ended up in the Marines where I belong. <laughs> <laughs> um, we ask a lot of veterans on this show about their transition from the service. Uh, yours is much more public than our usual guest. In fact, you've written a book about it, which Andrea mentioned. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about your transition from the service and sort of the circumstances around that? Yeah, I can. Um, you know, the the process of being a Marine for 20 years is really interesting because it becomes your identity in so many different ways. And so um, when I was fired from command, that was a pretty abrupt transition into kind of a void. I was kind of just treading water waiting for the next year and a half to go by before I could retire. 
And I was kind of stuffed into a little office on the Navy Yard doing clemency and parole board work. And I didn't really feel like a Marine at that point. And so my transition from the Marine Corps was a little bit different than that, I think, of most veterans in that I had already sort of come to grips with the fact that I needed to I needed to be something different. I needed to really figure out who I was as a human being. So had a pretty abrupt transition when I was fired, spent about a year and some change at the Navy Yard um, trying to figure out what I was going to do when I got out, and then um, kind of fell into the trap I think a lot of veterans fall into as they're transitioning, where they're told by the folks who come in to do their transition courses that, you know, all you have to do is update your LinkedIn profile and update your resume, and you've done all these great things in the military, and it's going to be easy. And I think what we find out is that it's anything but primarily because we're losing our identity. And then on top of that, we're having to really figure out how to translate our skills um, in a way that will resonate with the civilian sector. And so uh, transitioning was pretty challenging for me in many ways. Um, my confidence had been shaken just by being fired. And then on top of that, trying to reinvent myself was a challenge. So what new skills or passions have you discovered since you left the Marine Corps? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So I've discovered really what it means to be human again. And I don't, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but I have spent uh, really the last three years of my life since getting out of the Marines, uh, really trying to understand who I am as a person and kind of what makes me tick. And um, I've spent a lot of that time focused on increasing my emotional intelligence and really developing more of uh, an awareness of myself and uh, my skills in terms of how to better manage myself. Um, so it's been a deeply personal journey for me and it's now work that I want to help other people do because I think it's really something that we lack in the military. We don't necessarily equate emotional intelligence with good leadership and we really should. So that's kind of become my, my life's work and it just happened through happenstance and that's where I am now. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you're planning to help other people, um, you know, really ignite that, you know, that next step and their, their passions in the right direction? Yeah. So I, I've actually recently started, uh, my own business doing consulting work and I am, um, combining my work on, uh, executive leadership development and emotional intelligence work with a focus on diversity and inclusion, um, that, that really is where my heart lies. I mean, I, I think the emotional intelligence goes hand in hand with that because if we see treating people as, as human beings, as just part of being good leaders, then all of that just sort of happens naturally. But unfortunately we're at a place in time right now where we're having to teach people who are in positions of leadership that that is an expectation and that's the right thing to do. And I think a lot of that is because, especially in the corporate sector, people tend to be put into positions of, of, of leadership and authority based off of what they did in the past, not necessarily what their potential is for the future. So there's a lot of room to help people grow in that area, and that's really what I'm going to focus on. So you were put in a position um, where you were uh – a, a, a leader and you were kind of forced to be publicly vulnerable. Um, and so I, I would really like to know more about your thoughts on a, first of all, self-care with how you got through that and how you continue to 
um, just slay every day. <laughs> and, I love that. Yeah, That's hilarious. We'll start with that. I, I don't slay every day. There are a lot of days where I'm on my knees crawling, but, um, I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. Self-care is something that I have not been very good at. I think a lot of people who have been in the military think that self-care means going out and running. And that is good mentally and it's good physically, but it's not the only solution when you're going through tough times. And so, um, coming to grips with self-care and being compassionate to myself has really been a challenge. Um, because I think that for a long time I was conditioned to believe that compassion was a form of weakness, particularly when you were being kind to yourself. So I've been taking a stance that's based really on a lot of social science and research to try to make it more palatable for myself. And uh, reading a lot of Harvard Business Review articles helps um, because there's a lot of credibility there. It makes it easier to, to swallow it. Um, but I'm finding that if I am more kind to myself, that I, it, it, I pay it forward with other people. And so it almost becomes you know, this positive loop where if you're kind to yourself, then you're kind to others and then they pay it forward too. So, um, it's been a journey and it's been hard, but it's been very rewarding over this past couple of years. And I'll tell you, Andrea, I would never, ever have gotten to where I am today had it not been for my family and my friends. And, um, I have to give a shout out to Joe who, you know, because, he literally saves my sanity every day. So uh, between him and Mr. Fitzwizzle, my cat, I think um, I'm in a good place right now. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I think that we appreciate the most about you, Kate, and, and Joe as well, we'll, we'll slide him in here, is um, you are both such good boosters for the veterans community. And in a time when the veterans community is sort of looked at as one thing by, you know, popular culture, but is really more multifaceted than people give it credit for. How do you, you know, how do you guys do this? How, how are you able to amplify the voices of so many veterans and so many different veterans, um, and, and sort of help tell their, their stories and, and get those messages out? So I, again, I have to give a shout out to Joe because Joe, I don't know if you're, you watch or listen to Malcolm Gladwell or read his books, but he, Joe is a connector and he, he is so good at finding a person in his Rolodex who he knows can help someone. And he, he does a great job of maintaining relationships and connecting people. And so I'm trying to be more like Joe in that regard for me, um, what I found with my story, and I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I've screwed up a lot of stuff in my life, but there there were things that happened with my stint in command at Paris Island that were just wrong on so many different levels. And what I found was when I spoke out, I could do that because I didn't have anything to lose at that point. I'd already been fired and I knew I was going to be able to retire. So what I discovered was that I was able to hear the stories of people who would approach me by email or on the phone or on the street or in the halls of uh, Congress, and they would tell me their stories. And then what I could do is I could use their stories to amplify the message to the people who needed to hear. And so I can't tell you the number of women, for example, who've reached out to me and told me about their stories dealing with gender bias and sexual harassment and discrimination. And so being able to um, 
kind of be the microphone for them because they, they are in a place where they can speak out and not fear retribution. That's been really rewarding both on a personal and professional level to me. So that's what I try to do. That's awesome. Um, one of our themes here on the show sort of we've fallen into is this concept of accountability and mm-hmm. the fact that it's missing in so many different areas of public life. And it, it impacts veterans most acutely when it happens at the Department of Veterans Affairs, when it happens through politicians who say the wrong things, incite crowds that have no place being lionized or incited in public life. Mm-hmm. How, how do we do accountability as Americans? I think, you know, coming from the Marine Corps or Andrea and I come from the Navy, it's, it's easy to do within the service, but how do we as a nation embrace this concept of accountability and holding each other accountable, uh, maybe using some of those lessons that we learned in the service? I think we saw partly that happening last week, right? I I mean, it seems like the elections were weeks ago. It was last week, right? (laughs) I mean, I think think we saw people holding politicians, for example, accountable for years of failings and um, years of some assumptions about, you know, uh, maintaining power at the expense of the constituents. And so I think part of that is understanding that we as people, we as citizens, we as veterans, we are a check and balance on power and we need to use that power for the public good. Um, but I will say I have been so incredibly disappointed at the lack of checks and balances on the Department of Defense and the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs, because it seems like politicians, because there's such a big gap between people who serve and people who don't, it seems to me that politicians tend to defer to military leaders. And I think that's dangerous on so many levels, but I think we're seeing that play out um, adversely for the veteran community and for um, active duty service men and women uh, because Congress is afraid to hold them accountable and they're afraid to ask hard questions. So we're missing some of those uh, constitutional checks and balances that we should have. And I think that the latest elections might wake some people up and make them understand that they have that power and they have that role to play. So um, I, I really want to, I really liked the, what you brought up about the DOD not being held accountable and the Department of Veterans Affairs not being held accountable to the extent they really should be. Um, I really especially want to revisit this about the DOD. So what do you think we could do better to help, um, you know, as, as citizens who have already served um, and continue to serve in our communities, how can we work to bridge that gap so that people feel like they're informed citizens who can really question these institutions? Well, I mean, it, whether you serve or not, as a, as a taxpayer, you pay the salaries of everyone who serves. So simply by that very fact, as a citizen, you have a right to ask any question that you feel should be answered of the Department of Defense. The problem that we have is that, again, there's such a big gap between who serves and who doesn't that I think Americans feel a lot of guilt about asking hard questions of people who serve. And I think that that does us a a disservice. And I think what we end up with is this sort of uh, cult of personality with figures like Secretary Mattis. Um, And that's really, really dangerous on so many levels. So, I mean, I think this comes down to people just understanding that 
regardless of, of whether they've served or not, as American taxpayers, they have the right to ask hard questions of their politicians and of anyone serving in any sort of uh, politically appointed office to include the Secretary of Defense. And we need to do that because without us asking hard questions, we end up with uh, troops down at the border just uh, before the elections uh, with the bill of $70 million for the taxpayers. So how do we honor service without it turning into hero worship? Oh, it's such a good question. I wrestle with this every day. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I can say that it really bothers me. I, I, my skin literally crawls when people thank me for my service. Um, it doesn't feel good to be thanked for my service because we get paid good money for doing what we do. So part of that is, I think, reinventing the all-volunteer force um, but yeah, it's a tough question. I, d- I don't have an answer for that, but I think about it every day, every day. So this one is going to be totally a total non sequitur, but it's been on my mind, which is that, um, so I've been pretty out there for a couple of years about frustrations about uniform changes in the Navy to make women look more like men. And, it's been all over my social media feed that now the Marine Corps is doing the same thing and the right. first class of yeah. Um, yeah, female recruits mm-hmm. that just graduated as Marines wearing what to me look like men's uniforms. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, I, uh, I have a problem with the female. First of all, if you said to the men in the Marine Corps, we're going to – you know, uh, we're going to just mess around with your dress blues because we're not really sure that we like the way they look. So just bear with us and let us tinker around with them and we'll come up with an idea that works. If you said that to male Marines, it would be like a nuclear war, World War Three happening. They would never tolerate it. But when it comes to the female uniform, we'll take a hundred years of history with our caps, our service caps, and we'll throw that out the window because we want to make sure that female Marines blend in with male Marines. And I think the thing that's really most interesting to me now that I'm studying diversity and inclusion is that there's this continuum that organizations generally travel on towards the path to uh, inclusion. And what you see is that in the beginning, on the left-hand side of kind of that bell curve path, organizations will refuse to, to acknowledge differences in skin color and differences in gender because they want to have this, um, they want to convey this idea that there's no such thing as difference and that everyone's the same, everyone's treated the same. Meanwhile, everyone in the organization realizes that that's not true. So what you see is that there's a lack of value in the diversity that women bring. And this is a great example. And so where we haven't identified those systemic obstacles that need to be removed to allow women to succeed, here we are saying we're going to make women look like men, and that'll make everything better. So uh, I have big problems with the whole uniform thing, and I I liked the history of my uniform, and so to see it so cavalierly discarded and my uh, service cap thrown out, and you know uh, the new cover brought in, that really bothered me a lot as a as a woman marine. You know, one of the things that we've talked about on the show before is the goal 
of never reading the comments. <laughs> do not read the comments. Do not read the comments. Yeah. yeah. But you always read the comments. Uh, but you always do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we have all, the thing that binds a, a large part of the um, veterans community, whether on social media or through writing outlets is um, we've criticized the service in some capacity and in our own way, we each take a lot of flack for it and, or, you know, sort of marked to an extent. And that mark tends to follow you. And I, I feel like for you, it probably has followed you most of all. How, how do you deal with that, with this notion that if you love an institution, a job, uh, an organization so much, um, you expect that like anything else, you would hold it accountable. You would try to make it better yet, you know, you're viewed as a troublemaker or someone who's trying to denigrate, you know, the survey. How how have you dealt with that throughout your career and and how do you continue to deal with that? I have to tell you, honestly, I don't think I dealt with it well initially. I, I am just as human as anybody else. And so I want people to like me and I want, you know, I want to have a good time and I want to laugh and I, I want to get along with people. And so I wrestle with that because on one hand I'm like, well, screw that. I know this is the right thing by principle, so I don't care what they think. But on the other hand, you know, it is something that follows you. Um, and so it can be really difficult when you read those comments, but I think the way that I've tried to evolve as a person is I've, I understand now that if I'm saying something that is causing people to go write these screeds in response, I've touched a nerve and that's a good thing because it means that something is there that needs to be disclosed and discovered and talked about and picked at. And so, you know, I see it like this is no different than a red cell. We have red cells for operational planning for a reason. You know, no commander wants to develop this grandiose operational plan and then ask his or her people, hey, what do you think? And have them say, oh, yeah, it's awesome, ma'am, or it's fantastic, sir, and then go out and get people slaughtered. You know, we have red cells to troubleshoot and to try to keep plans in place so that things progress and everybody comes home safe. And I don't see this as being any different. You can love an institution and say that it needs to evolve. And in fact, when institutions fail to evolve, that's when things get problematic. And I think, uh, you know, we're at a really interesting place for the Marine Corps in particular, because we're starting to see it come along and, and change. And that's a good thing. So um wanted to close out with what advice would you have for someone who you you encounter who has great ideas but for whatever reason is afraid to write? Oh god, I got so much freedom through writing. And I, it is the first time in my career in 20 years I never felt like I could be me. I always felt like I was being someone else for the benefit of the system. And when I started writing, I felt a sense of freedom that I had never felt. And so uh, it, it will call to you and you will find your purpose. And when you write, you will touch people who don't feel like they have a voice. And that is freeing for you and it's freeing for them. So we got to get more women out there writing. We have to have more women writing. We have to have more women scholars talking about warfare and operational excellence. Um, 
And, and just know that when you write, you are speaking for people who don't have a voice and you're freeing them and you're freeing yourself. Roger, do you want to take us home? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Kate, uh, what, what last words of you know, wisdom or, or guidance do you have for our listeners? Um, and these are generally veterans who are historically underserviced in rural areas or who uh, want a little bit more out of uh, the current narrative in the veterans community? Uh, first and foremost, don't ever think that there's not someone who doesn't care. You know, you're not going through what you're going through alone, whether it's your GI Bill benefits, whether it's, uh, you know, getting uh, medical benefits through the VA, whatever it is, there are people out there who want to help. There are a lot of great American citizens out there who haven't served, but who do want to help veterans. So don't be ashamed or, or too proud to reach out. And then secondly, you know, we need people to run for office. We need people to write. We need people to be activists. And that's ideally what each of us is. So find your voice, find your cause and, and speak out. I think that's a great note to, to end on. Find your voice and find your cause, everyone. Until next time. Thank you, Kate Germano. Thank you. Thanks for having thanks, me. Thanks, Kate. And happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll see you next Aww. time on New Pets Upstage. <laughs> Don't eat too much. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Take care.